Well, good morning, First Family. Good morning. Isn't the name of Jesus awesome? We rejoice in that today. We rejoice that he has already won, that the victory is his, and all he lacks is finishing up. We rejoice today that we stand with him in that victory. Brothers and sisters, this is no small thing, nor should we regard it as such. So today we enter into chapter 13. When people ask me over the last 20-ish years to speak on Revelation, what they really mean is, Darren, we want you to talk about Revelation 13. So the talk that you will get today is 20 years in the making. You'll hang on then. We're going to be here a little while, all right? This talk is about Revelation 13, but it is also about the Lamb. Many times people will get so swept up with the idea of the beast that they forget the lamb has already defeated him. I want you to mark this down on your note sheet, even if you don't normally take notes. I want you to write this, the lamb is victorious. Would you write that down for me? Because it's going to be easy over the next few weeks as we walk through these next couple of chapters to think that somehow the beast is already won, that the beast is overwhelming and his authority and his power are terrifying, and it's easy to get impressed, maybe even depressed, with the idea that the beast has such authority and how many people will be swept up by him in his wake and how many will be drawn along simply by the force of his personality. Friends, I want to tell you today, the lamb is already victorious. He's already won. So as we start today, let's start with the, the lamb's eternal plan and the beast rising from the sea. Chapter 13 really begins in chapter 12. If you go back to the very tail end of chapter 12, you'll see the dragon where we left him standing on the sands of the sea. He's standing on the beach. I got a couple of questions about this last week. Darren, why didn't you touch on that? Because I was saving it for today. I was saving it for today because I want you to see verse thir chapter 13, verse 1. I saw a beast rising out of the sea. This is where you should go, ooh. Because the truth is, it is a little terrifying. The beast rising out of the sea. At last we reach the point that so many people focus on in Revelation. The beast is a mythical, apocalyptic figure. He's terrifying in his rage, his approach, and he is unbelievably attractive to many. He wields enormous power, incredible authority, and demands full allegiance and fealty to his way. He uses brute force to engage and reveals the true depth of his character by doing so. In spite of all of that, it is the Lamb's eternal plan that stands supremely over it because the Lamb has already won. He won at the cross. Now, I told you last week that we would tell you today who the beast is. I didn't fill in all of that question, though. In the first century, who did they believe this was? When John originally saw this. Who did he think it was? It's real easy, friends. Nero. 
for the first century readers of this letter, of this vision, they would have had no doubt in their mind. John's talking about Nero. He was an overwhelming figure in the first century, even though he died in 65 AD, some 30 years, if our, if our date is accurate, 30 years before this book was written, our friend Nero still had quite a following. Not only that, there were a great many legends that implicated that Nero had risen from the dead and had taken on the identity of these other rulers. After all, they didn't have television or radio or even print media to say, hey, look, see this picture of him? This is what Nero really looks like. We know better now. Now, 2,000 years later, we seem to believe that it's not Nero. Who is it then? So I started making a list of all those that I've heard in my lifetime identified as the beast. Are you ready? You might want to scratch some of these down. Napoleon Bonaparte, George Washington, uh, Adolf Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini. Now let's move down to more recent times. JFK, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, Dwight Eisenhower. Now let's move down a lot more recent. Ronald Reagan, Walter Mondale, Jimmy Carter. Now let's move down much more recent. Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton, Mitch McConnell. For the last 2,000 years, there's been no shortage of guesses about who the beast is. Here's what I want you to write down also. We don't know who the beast is. We don't. We'll pick up on this tonight where we'll spend a considerable amount of time of it at five at five, but I wanna encourage you with this thought. When the beast does reveal himself, we won't have to wonder if this is him. He will make his presence known and we will understand him to be who he is. I wanna talk with you about the origin of the beast, his power and his appearance. Let's talk about that very quickly. We've got way too much in today's talk, but I didn't want to break it into two, so we're going to rush through this. First of all, he arises from the sea with great power. As we noted a moment ago, that's where he comes from. He arises with ten horns, seven heads, ten crowns on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. Let's talk about what these mean. The seven heads represent wisdom and Chapter 12, it's the dragon who is the seven-headed monster. Now, the beast has that role. The multiplicity of heads suggests the width and depth of his power. The seven heads represent wisdom, or at least earthly wisdom. Let's talk about the horns. The horns always, and throughout Scripture, are representative of strength. To see all these gathered together is to represent consolidated strength. Horns are representative of things coming together. This, with a multiplicity of horns, 10 of them, we understand to be a union, consolidation of strength. The crowns, they represent ruling authority. That's probably the easiest one of the lot. The crowns represent a royal authority. We understand that. The wearing of several crowns reflects a width of authority, that he isn't just king over this region or that region. He's a king over a lot of regions. The blasphemous names represent a claim to divine authority. 
If you jump ahead six chapters to Revelation 19, when we see Jesus riding in over the hill, he is wearing a name. He's not the only one who wears a name, though. In Revelation 17, the great harlot sitting on the red beast, she wears a name, too. The difference is between her name and Jesus is her name, and these names are blasphemous, attempting to steal or counterfeit the divine authority. These names, whatever they may be, are intended to serve as a counterfeit of the real thing, to deceive, to send a great delusion. We'll come back to that. His appearance, this is where we link up with our friend in Daniel. Go back and read Daniel's prophecy, and you'll see that Daniel has a vision not unlike the one John has. In Daniel chapter 7, you find that Daniel has a vision of a four-headed beast. These beasts arise from the sea, just like our friend John's describing. For Daniel, the beasts represent four kingdoms, the Medes, the Persians, the Romans, and the Babylonians. For John, the beast represents just one, one kingdom. All of these terrible and awesome kingdoms come together to create one, and this unity will create a problem for all of humanity. He is described in three ways, and we would do well to understand them. He is quick like a leopard. He can move side to side and definitely straight forward and back in rapid fashion. He has the strength of a bear, incredible strength in his hands and his feet. He has the devouring capacity like a lion when we see him. John intends us to understand him as a terrifying foe. And can I just be honest enough to say it's working? It's easy for us if we only read this much in it, verses 1 and 2, it's easy for us to think, wow, how can anyone possibly come against him? I want to send you home with a couple of things. Here's a few things I want you to take home right from the very beginning. One, prepare for the attacks of Satan because we know they're coming. If you know what game plan your opponent is going to use, you can prepare for it. If you know what pitch the pitcher is going to throw you, it makes it much easier to hit. I want to tell you, friends, Satan has already tipped his hand. We know how he's going to come. We know how his attacks look. So let's prepare now for the attacks of Satan because we know they're coming. We know what they'll look like. He'll hit us and he won't play fair. So don't be surprised and prepare for them now. Here's the second thing I want you to take home. Satan doesn't know when Jesus is coming back any more than we do. So he'll continue to attack right up until the time Jesus does return. Satan doesn't know nearly as much as many of us think he does. We want to give him too much credit. We want to loan it out to him and say, well, you know, he's just the other half of God. He's the yin to God's yang. No, don't you? Don't you dare believe it. We're going to circle back to this, but all of this is under God's authority. Let's move on quickly to the beast's rise to power over all nations of the earth. Verse 2, the second half of it. And to the dragon, and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled. 
as they follow the beast. Satan the dragon enthrones the beast with authority. Now you might say, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not his throne to give. Well, now hold on. It doesn't say this is the eternal throne. It doesn't say this is God's throne. It says that he gives him a throne. In Matthew 4, Jesus meeting with Satan, what does Satan offer him? All the kingdoms of the earth. You remember that? All the kingdoms. Fall down and worship me, Jesus, and all this will be yours. There is much that Satan can offer. Although he is not omnipresent, omniscient, or any of the other omnis, such a deficiency does not limit his power entirely. What power he does possess, he endues to the beast and gives him that capacity to wreak havoc on the earth. It is as if the beast has been given Satan's throne, but only for a season. This moment will not last. There are those who are seeking to fight back. You see him hinted at in verse, thir- verse 3. As the beast is mortally wounded. See it there again. One of his heads seemed to have had a mortal wound, but its wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. One of the seven heads is gravely wounded. Let me tell you, friends, irrespective of the wound, the beast recovers, sending the whole earth into amazement. There will be many when this transpires that will say, well, surely, surely this, this wound wouldn't have happened. This healing couldn't have occurred without God. Be cautious, my friends. Counterfeits can be good fakes. They can be really good and they can deceive even the best of us. I want to caution you against it and help us know that as the beast rises to power, there will be many swept up in it that will be drawn to him, not just because he's affable, although that seems to be true, not just because he's powerful, although that's obviously true, not just because of of what they see, but because of what they feel. I want to pause here in in our, our dialogue and talk about this because we are, have adapted as a world, not just as the United States, we've adapted this idea that our feelings will lead us to truth. There are times that is true, and I do not wish to pretend otherwise. However, if we always give our feelings the final vote, we might find ourselves disappointed. Your feelings are wonderful. They are a gift from God but they are not intended to be the final vote. I caution you against that because what we've seen in the 2,000 years since John wrote this letter is how easy it is for feelings, no matter how powerful, to be misled, to be misinterpreted, and as such to be finding oneself at the wrong place. There are times, believe it or not, when... I don't feel quite as tall as I really am. Then I visit some of your homes with ceiling fans that are well below my height level, and I'm reminded my feelings are a bad guide. Likewise, you may feel variously about the Word of God or about God Himself, 
Don't let your feelings be equivocated with God or his word. This moment where the beast recovers, it is a turning point. And it leads us to what follows in verses 4 to 8. The beast worshipped as God. They worshipped the dragon, for he'd given the authority of the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Sounds like a praise song, doesn't it? It would be easy to turn that one into music. The beast, as awesome and powerful as he might appear, is one who would directly compete with God. The first commandment is, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Here, we see people rejecting that as they bow their allegiance to the beast. After all, the logic might go, surely such a miracle that we've just observed can't be accomplished without divine authority. Only God can give life. That's what leads them to the song, who's like the beast and who can fight against him? It's a rhetorical theme. And it sounds a lot like what we find in Psalm 3510, 1 Samuel 4. We find it all over the place in Scripture, only instead of talking about the beast, it's talking about God. Can I tell you, friends, there are some really good fakes, some really good counterfeits. They are just that, counterfeits. And that's why they worship the beast. Now, the temptation is to say, well, were I to be there, I would be wiser. I would be smarter. I want to caution you. I want to caution you. It's easy to get drawn in by fakes. And our cynicism ought to compel us to ask better questions. But if we've noticed anything in the last few years in our culture, it is the death of critical thinking, of asking why, how, where. We don't do that anymore unless it's about our political opponents, and then we tear them apart. But that's not critical thinking. That's just critical. That's just being critical. Critical thinking is when you evaluate things on their merits. And let me tell you, friends, there will be many who won't do that. They'll just worship the beast. Everybody else is doing it. Why not? I keep thinking about that old story that Chuck Swindoll told some years ago. Chuck is a pastor in the Dallas area, very well known, many of you. He tells a story about some flies. Now, how Chuck knows this story, I don't know. But perhaps he has insight to flies that I lack, so we'll let him share his story. He tells a story about two flies flying along, and they look down and they see a piece of fly paper. And they notice there are several dozen flies attached to it, and they seem to be dancing. The two flies flying above it are conversing, and one of them says, hey, it looks like a dance floor. Let's go down and join them. You know it wasn't Baptist flies at that point. Let's go down and join them. The second fly, much wiser, says, are you crazy? That's fly paper. We'll get stuck there. The first fly, foolish though he may be, and driven by his feelings, says, all those people surely can't be wrong, and joins them in their dance. I want to caution you, friends. Make sure that you know what the real thing looks like so that when the counterfeit comes, you won't be deceived. They worship the beast. 
Not only do they worship the beast, they worship the beast with his blasphemous words for 42 months. Three and a half years. With his blasphemous words. The blasphemous words of the beast are against God, where he is attempting to tear God apart. He wants to remove all confidence in God. And I want you to notice this word, blasphemy. It's not a word that gets used much anymore, but let's talk about it for a minute. It means in direct opposition to God. It doesn't mean that somebody disagrees with you about some shade, some turn of how to read Scripture. It means they're directly disagreeing with the terms of Scripture, that it is God's word and faithful for life. The frequent use of that term in this chapter causes us to recognize this is an abject rejection of God's authority and God's sovereignty. Furthermore, it is a supplanting of that with the beast. To speak against the temple is to speak against God himself. The beast slanders any and all who would stand with God for the purpose of dissuading them from being with God. Friends, these blasphemous words, they will continue, but not forever. Some might say three and a half years feels like forever. You know, I can understand that. As I was preparing to come talk to you today, I realized that it has been just about two and a half years since COVID started. Anybody think it's been longer than that? It feels that way to me. I want you to recognize, though, that this is a limited window that the beast has. And here's the part that I really want you to celebrate. The beast's rule seems to be complete during this time, but is still under God's authority. There's a phrase that I want you to see. It's in verse 7, and I want you to underline it if you would be so kind. It was allowed, allowed. So this beast, whoever they might be, with all the power to make war against the saints, to attack God and his people, to assault them in every possible way, this beast is still under God's authority. I don't know if that's good news to you, friends, but it is to me. Because it means that the God that I worship, the God that I serve, has never been out of control, and get this, never will be out of control. He is always on the throne, even when it looks like he isn't. And even at what is the darkest time in Christian history, it is still his authority that allows this. Now, the temptation is to come back against that and say, well, if God is still in charge, why doesn't he do something about this? To that, I take you back to the purpose of Revelation, the twofold. It's a word of encouragement to those in Christ that things will not always be as they are. He is giving them a chance to clarify who they are. The other purpose of Revelation, it's a word of warning that things will not always be as they are to those outside of Christ. Which of those do you wish to be? Which camp do you want to be in? A seemingly universal worship for the beast will only enhance his power 
And yet, he is still limited by God's authority. Two things I want you to take home with you. One, decide now what you believe so to avoid being fooled later. Beloved friends, I've seen a great many people be swept in by cults, by fancy speeches, by smooth words. Decide now what you believe and anchor yourself to it. By doing so, you will take care of the second part. Spend time anchoring yourself and your family in truth in order that falsehood will stand out. A lot of times we want to spend our days filling our brains with things that are not eternal. We allow ourselves to fill our brains with that and to be filled with all these things that are not eternal. And so it's easy to be deceived. It's easy to be fooled. It's easy to be tricked. But if you spend your days anchoring yourself in the word of God and letting it wash over you, spending time in prayer with the Lord himself and saying, God, I don't want to be deceived. Help me know truth. Help me be anchored to your truth. That, friends, that will guarantee that when falsehood appears, you at least have a puncher's chance of seeing it for what it is. Now let us end our time this morning with the good news. The, lambs, the lamb who was slain is the adversary of the beast. See it, the last half of verse 8 through verse 10. The lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here's a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. This exact phrase appears only here, the lamb who was slain. According to John chapter 1, verse 29, when John the Baptist finds him, he proclaims him to be the Lamb of God who was slain from the foundations of the world. His execution did not take place before the foundation of the world. No, it means it was in the heart of God to redeem humanity before the world began. God knew what we would do even before things got together. And yet he not only created us, but built a plan to redeem us as well. This invocative phrase in verse 9 is one that I would, caution, would call to your attention. Let him hear. What he's speaking of is not the physical process or the biological process of letting sound waves strike against your eardrum. Rather, what he means is let your ears do their job and let that pass from your ears to your heart. Those of you with children in your home, how many times have you whispered something about your child to your spouse, something you did not want your child to hear, and yet their radar ears picked it up anyway? Likewise, how many times have you been talking to them, giving them the child clear instruction about what they're to do and how they're to do it, and when time comes, they say, I didn't hear you. Don't let that be you, friends. He who has an ear, let him hear. We saw that phrase in chapters 2 and 3 
Jesus said it over and over again to the churches. It means take what has been given to you and act on it. Now he speaks about those who were genuinely saved, and with this we'll draw to a close. How will we identify them? Who are those who are genuinely saved? Several ways we'll acknowledge it. One, they are those who are faithful to the Lamb in hearing his word. Letting his word take place in their life, giving it room and, and, and clarity and letting it be the thing that governs them and anchors their days. Secondly, those who are genuinely saved are secure in the Lamb's book of life. Satan holds no power over them. As terrifying and as awesome and as powerful as he might be, Satan holds no power over them. Third, there are those who hear the word of God and obey. It's one thing to hear God's word, it's another thing to act on it. Those who are genuinely saved will have their want to changed. Fourth, they're willing to accept God's will even if it's captivity or death. This idea that somehow God owes us a deliverance is utter nonsense because the reality is he's already given it to us. Remember where we started? The lamb is victorious. Our victory with the lamb is not on this earth. This is not our home, friends. This kingdom is not ours. We will never bring about the kingdom of heaven on earth, and certainly not through political means. Maybe what we need to do is change our direction, change our, our hope, which brings me to the last thing. Those who are genuinely saved are willing to entrust themselves to God's care as they continue in steadfast loyalty. That's verse 10 in a summary. It means that I'm placing myself and all of myself in God's good care. Two last things I want you to take home. Where does your allegiance belong? Answering that question will tell you much about what you really prize. I would plead with you today to anchor your allegiance to Jesus for the coming storm that is yet ahead. There is a storm ahead, my friends. There is a storm that is brewing, and it's on the horizon already. We see hints of it almost every day with the trouble in the Middle East and the trouble in Russia and Ukraine, the trouble in China and Taiwan. We see it every day when the, the rejection of God's word on a wholesale fashion across our United States, we cannot be surprised. Friends, today I want to ask you, where does your allegiance belong? If you have to choose between two, which will you choose? This is a conversation I've had with my family several times. If the United States and Texas were to part ways, my allegiance lies with Texas, brothers and sisters. They can have the rest of it. I've seen some of that, and I don't need it. This is my home. 
But you know what? It's not my home forever. If you have to choose, if I have to choose between heaven and this earth, no matter how awesome it might be, I'm choosing heaven. What about you? Where does your allegiance belong? To whom do you belong? The last question is similar. Are you among those genuinely saved? Or do you just look the part? You see, you can do a lot of faking just like the beast did. You can do a lot of faking in this genuine description I've given for you. I'm asking you today, are you looking the part or is it something that's deep within you? My prayer is that it's deep within you. If it's not, then you know what? Today is a good day to settle that. Here, right now, in this very place, you can come forward and say, Darren, I've never invited Christ into my life, but I want to, right here. You can do that. I'll be waiting for you right down here. Doesn't mean you have it all together. Doesn't mean you're perfect. Doesn't mean you're sinless. Doesn't mean you've got all the right answers. It means that you're willing to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord and that he's already won and you want your allegiance with him. That's what it means. Maybe you recognize today you've sold yourself down the river to the wrong thing. Here's the altar for you to come and say, Lord, that's not what I want. I want to be yours. Perhaps you need a church family to walk with you. Then here's what you do. To join our church, you come down and you talk to us about it. We want you to do that today. Maybe you need to be baptized. It's the first step of Christian obedience, of shifting your loyalty to Christ. My prayer is that if you haven't done that, you'll come down and talk with us about that. Today is your day to decide what you will do with the Lamb who has already won. Pray with me, won't you? Jesus, this day is the one you've given us to respond to you. It's not that it's a surprise. It's why we came. For many of us, Lord Jesus, we are here because we wanted to hear from you. So now that we have, Jesus, I pray that you'd help us to put feet to it. That if there are those who need to come forward proclaiming you, Jesus, as their Lord and Savior, that right now, they would feel that freedom to do so. For those who need to join this church, for those, Lord Jesus, who need to move their allegiance wholly to you, let this day be the day they choose that very thing. Lord Jesus, we commit ourselves to you, our homes, our families, our futures, and we say, Jesus, everything we have belongs to you. And you've already won. Forgive us for holding it back, Jesus. Forgive us for selling our loyalties the wrong way. And now, Lord Jesus, move in this invitation time. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.